welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Roy Dean. I'm a seeker, teacher, reader, writer, martial artist, a warrior in this world trying to make his way. There are conversations that we need to have, conversations about ideas. Welcome to the conversation. Let's listen in. Thanks for coming on. Welcome to the podcast. Huge honor. I, I usually, wherever I go, it's usually the end of the person's career when I when I hop on their podcast. So hopefully that's not the case here. But thanks for having me. No, it's it's great. And thanks for hosting me. In uh, I'm here in Reno, and we've been hanging out at the Lazy Lobo Ranch, the homestead, and it's it's pretty impressive. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Why don't you um, kind of paint the scene of what you're doing? Uh, with your home and the ranch and and the vision for it. Sure, yeah, you know, it's um I, I may end up however many people are listening, you may they may drop by like 50% really quickly, <laughs> but uh, uh I'm into it, they're into I, it. I'm um I'm a little bit of a doomsday bunkery type guy. Like I have this sneaky suspicion that like all this fiat currency and like debt and mm. all this stuff that most of what our like kind of financial system is based on is a fairy tale. And as long as the fairy tale goes on, everything's going to be okay. But there may come a point where things may get a little dodgy. And, and uh, I don't think it's kind of like road warrior type deal, but it, that's a motivation. And so we moved out of a, a really nice kind of suburban sprawl scenario onto a small uh, 1960s farmhouse. And we remodeled it last year. And then I've been raising animals in this kind of savory institute, holistic management format, trying mm. to, uh, reverse the desertification that has happened on this property and you've seen it like mm -hmm. it, it looks like a jungle back there and you know totally. two years ago there was huge erosion and and loss of topsoil and now all that's totally reversed and we're raising all kinds of food we have kind of like a permaculture forest and we work our way through sheep and goats and everything in this kind of biodynamic fashion and i have two daughters five years old and three years old and so in addition to my lunatic fringe kind of doomsday bunker stuff like I just wanted some quality of life for my kids. And when we lived in this beautiful, you know, kind of suburban neighborhood, there was no, we had a driveway, but it was basically like a 45 degree incline down to the road. Mm -hmm. And so very difficult for small kids to ride their bikes or play or whatever, like they drop a ball, it's out in the road. And mm -hmm. when we moved into this house, it was still a disaster. Like this place really had not been maintained since the 1960s. Like it was super rough. But we had just finished moving the bulk of our stuff in. And then Zoe, my oldest daughter, she walked up to me and she said, Dada, can I go outside and play? And I was like, yeah, you you can go for it, you know. And she went outside and went and went in the pasture, you know, adjoining the property. And she was back there catching frogs and grasshoppers. And so, I mean, that it, it, you know, there's kind of a resiliency move, um, you know, thinking mm -hmm. about if things got a little dodgy economically that we would have some buffer with that but it was definitely a huge lifestyle improvement move mm -hmm. even though the house that we're in now is literally 50 percent smaller than what the other house was the other house was big and nice and vaulted ceilings and this and that and the other but it, it uh just didn't really feel like home whereas this place really does feel like home and we rain or shine although it's mainly shine in reno like it mm -hmm. rains infrequently but uh, even when the weather is bad we spend the bulk of our time outside like we just mm. aren't inside that much so it's just been a huge quality of life move for us and i'm i'm trying to get a uh, 
on-site gym and office and a little jujitsu studios built there in the next yeah. year and then I'll, I'll be pretty buttoned up yeah yeah fantastic fantastic uh and so is this a new field of interest for you kind of the Sustainable farming, to put it very, very simply. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because so almost almost 20 years ago to the day, 19 years ago, mm-hmm. I got into this paleo diet, ancestral health kind of thing in dealing with some health issues. And the things that kind of led me to think that that was a viable kind of template for looking at human health. I mean, literally on the heels of that, I was thinking, oh, okay, so grass-fed meat and rotational grazing and all this stuff, this mm-hmm. would fit into the food production system. Like, And this is a really controversial topic because it, it's very much in vogue to, um, to look at animal husbandry in particular as being this really injurious thing to the environment and to our health and all mm-hmm. that type of stuff. But throughout most of planetary and human history, there's been lots and lots of animals, you know, doing lots yeah. and lots of stuff. And, and they, you know, the, the methane cow farts and stuff like that didn't destroy the planet in the past. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, almost 20 years ago, I was thinking that there was something really viable to this, uh, sustainable food production thing, decentralization in production, centralization and distribution. But at this time, 20 years ago, there were about 200 people on the planet that knew what a paleo diet ancestral health Mm -hmm. approach was, you know. And so just simply talking to people and saying, hey, saturated fat may not kill you the way that we're being told. That was pretty controversial. And so it's been something that I've had to wait for folks. It's interesting. They kind of go through a process. Usually they have some health issues. And then as they eat better and sleep better and live better, their health issues resolve. And then when they're able to pop their own head up because their their personal health issues are not that big of a thing, mm. they start looking around and saying, okay, well, what else should I do? And the other – the thing that you might should consider is like your global reach or your impact and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so then people are in a much more amenable spot to think about you know, their food sourcing and all that type of thing. And these systems are sustainable with support from – it's all about communities, right? Connecting people through food sourcing. And I mean, I really love the slow food movement Mm -hmm. and, you know, seasonal rotation of vegetables or whatever happens to be in season and, and getting stuff uh, more locally as opposed to having it shipped in. I, it makes a difference. I think it makes a difference on every level and, and it's, and you see this tying into that. Right. Right. For sure. And it's interesting where normally, you know, when we lived in this suburban situation, we knew one neighbor there and it was, mm. you know, it's kind of like, hi, how are you doing? Um, where we live now, we don't have a ton of neighbors because the, the properties are, are larger, but mm-hmm. the four or five, six immediate neighbors, we know all of them. And like we grow and produce things that other folks don't grow or produce on their property, even mm-hmm. because they just have a little different microclimate compared to where, where we are. And they're 400 meters away from our from where we are. And uh, so like the guy next to us does turkeys for Thanksgiving. So we give them some sheep or goat and they give us some turkey. And oh, then uh, we made some hard, some hard cider. And then he made some whiskey and, you know, mm. and so there's this pretty cool community there. And the, the person next to us, um, they lease their property out for some horse grazing. And the other day, a couple of the horses broke through a fence and they were walking around on the road and five different houses, homes, you know, uh, uh, family units were out there corralling the horses, got them put it back. We rebuilt the fence 
And then the, the gal who owns the horses, she was up in Tahoe and we called her and she came back down. But by the time she got back here, the fence was mended. The horses were put away. The kids were feeding the horses carrots. There was no drama. And so you didn't need the police or animal control or, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. We just, we, we, uh, the, uh, the house up the street from us, there's this young gal who rides horses all the time. So she had leads and halters and everything. And she went up and grabbed the horses and put them back in the field. And I mean, it was kind of cool, you know, and we all right. know each other that much better now. So there's that trust and the intimacy and, and that kind of community feature. And we're lucky that all of our neighbors are cool. Hopefully th- they think we're cool too. And we're not like the annoying people down the street, but I guess if there's going to be an annoying person on the street, it's better. You are that person than you experience that person. But you know, it, it's pretty cool. And it was something that I don't think we could have ever really cultivated in that, that other kind of environment. Interesting. Uh, kind of the law of opposites the greater the population density, the greater the isolation and anonymity. And, you know, you have a little bit more space, you're more comfortable, you want to get to know that person. Right. Uh, And, I mean, it's amazing that you guys were able to handle that without the involvement of local or federal government, you know? Right, right. (laughs) You know, we don't need that. They're not going to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's... It it sounds like... um, a really nurturing environment and, and being out there, it, it definitely feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, uh, it, it's super lucky, super, super lucky to have it. But it also, it was a lot of planning and forethought and we had to, I always get really nervous about people who are like, I, I live in on an, an intentional life way or, you know, whatever, but yeah. you know, it, it just raises my hackles sometimes, but we did have some some goals and some plans that we wanted to knock out with regards to quality of life. And I guess there was some significant intentionality that went into that. Yeah, definitely. You can see it. And I mean, as the vision plays out and you've only been in there two years, two coming up on three. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you also, in addition to, you know, lecturing about paleo lifestyle and nutrition and traveling all over the world and being a recognized expert. You also do BJJ. I, I do. I've, I've kind of uh, accepted that my role in jujitsu is to be good enough to make everybody else look amazing, but I, I try to be as uh, relevant as I can for a 45-year-old has-been athlete, uh, purple belt. But yeah, I'm, I'm chipping away at that stuff. So just talk to me about your exposure to BJJ and then how it's evolved as, as you've evolved, you know, um, you know, the opportunity to train and how you've seen training shift. And- yeah. Yeah. So it's funny, um, in any given room that I land in, there may be several black belts in there. And inevitably, if you, if you go by the, the first date of exposure as being how long you've done jujitsu, inevitably I've done jujitsu longer than like anybody else in the room. So my, gotcha. my first exposure to jujitsu was down at the Torrance Academy in 1992. Mm-hmm. And I went for like three days and it was totally awesome. But at this point I was pretty geeked out on Thai boxing. And I had this chance to kind of go through the instructor training process and all that type of jive. And I, I kind of had to pick one or the other. And so I, I stuck with the Thai boxing. And so I didn't have a second jujitsu exposure until about 1998. So there's like six years between, you know, first, first three or four right. classes and then second three or four classes. And for whatever reason, my work schedule has always been early. I, I've been in these, these things where I start work at like 7 or 7.30 a.m. or mm-hmm. something like that. And at this point, there were some, some decent... Um, 
jujitsu schools up in Seattle, which is where I lived at this time. But it was just kind of funny. Like they were still in this early development where they couldn't seem to get their act together such that they had their own school and they had reasonably timed classes. Like mm-hmm. it was nine o'clock at night that the the class was. And, and yeah, so non prime time hours. Do, yeah, I would do that for two hours and then try to go home and go to bed. And I was supposed to be up at five. And so. I would do a couple of classes here and there, but it really was, you, you know, I would have a smattering here, smattering there, but it was really only uh, four, four going on five years ago now that I got into a pretty good, pretty consistent pattern of at least two, two days a week of training. And uh, more recently, more like four or five days a week of training. And uh, it's been really good. And a lot of what I've focused on is just trying to find a, a good, combination of the volume and intensity and then also i tend to be a little bit more kind of concept driven Mm -hmm. you know versus like the the i know some people that are like an encyclopedia of techniques right and they see a technique and they just integrate it it's burned into their brain stem and i'm not that person i Mm -hmm. i i'm like i need some very simple stuff some like a a b maybe a b c options out of any given situation right and i thrive with that because i can just kind of rep rep on that and get a little bit of iteration and pressure and body type but it's still kind of working the same basic skill set and i Mm -hmm. I tend to do pretty well with that but that's that's kind of been my evolution in this whole thing is is uh having a really profound interest in brazilian jiu-jitsu but not easy access and kind of prioritizing some other stuff building businesses and all that but that was one of the things after my first book was released that I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to prioritize this. And then conveniently, we finally hit some places where there were some noon and midday classes that, that you know, fit into my schedule better. Yeah. And then, so, I mean, you've done a variety of athletics, you know, you're into powerlifting, you're kickboxing. Um, obviously, you have a history with CrossFit, um, and we can get into that a little bit, a little bit later, but... Um, so, you know, really good athletic background. How do you feel BJJ um, rates as a lifestyle art, as a, a, an art with, you know, do you think it's beneficial for most people considering the injury rate? I mean, how do you feel about the safety factor in BJJ and having it as a a staple as a healthy lifestyle man that's a really good question you know one of the things that was a constant challenge for us running a crossfit type gym people would come through the door and they were not ready for the volume the intensity and some of the movement patterns Mm -hmm. like a significant amount of the movement patterns um if you can't just go from standing and then squat down into a chair or a, a full squat position without some pain or some need to adjust on the way down you're probably not ready to do like a thruster you know like a barbell on your chest and drop into a full squat and drive it over your head and so there was some kind of movement preparation that was uh necessary or maybe beneficial there and it, it it's really hard and i also get that you can't make things so incremental that people get bored like you've got to give them that hook and get them mm-hmm. a dose so that they're kind of bought in but you know like i see a lot of people um white belts maybe even blue belts that like pop a rib or something because they're trying to get out of side control and they're rotating prior to their bridge and they're right. integrated and so there was never that that time of you know there's a couple of really fundamental movement patterns and some conditioning things that i think really minimizes the likelihood of, mm-hmm. of injury and some of that is you know like some spinal awareness and 
you know, how to bridge properly. And when you're shrimping, it's not a rotational deal. Right. And that usually isn't laid down very well in, in a lot of places that mm-hmm, I see. Mm-hmm. But that's also not super exciting stuff. But, but you know, there's some opportunities like just get, getting people, you know, get out of side control drill where you break it down where the, unbeknownst to them, all that they're doing is basically a weighted hip bridge with good technique. Right, right. You know, and you get them repping on that and they build some cardiovascular capacity. They build some muscular capacity and then you start layering over time. So I think jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu could be very amenable as a long-term lifestyle option for people, but they definitely need to be mindful of the volume and intensity, their partner, um, what type of training styles are doing? Like, are they doing a super grip dependent game or, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So there's definitely some considerations, but I think that it could be really, you know, it could be something that you, you write out over the, the long haul. I don't see any problems with that, but you, you need to know when enough's enough and when to take some time off and to do some of the other restorative stuff. Like I've, um, I still do some gymnastic strength training and a little bit of weight strength training. It, it's boring to the point of you know near suicide every time i go in the gym but what i what i notice is it just kind of armor plates me like that that little dose uh twice a week 15 to 30 minutes uh of maintenance it's huge as far as mitigating injuries down the road yeah yeah and it seems like i mean you've trained in a variety of of areas with a variety of teachers including some really excellent teachers so i mean it seems like the modern way is more about a progression mm-hmm. and kind of adapting. You, know, you don't go and do backflips the first day in gymnastics. Right. They build you up. and But it's not always that way in BJJ. Right. Um, and or, you know, in many martial arts schools, I think, I think there is sometimes an attitude of like, we're going to give you the full dose. Right. Right. You know, and... And that can be exciting to some people, and it can um, it can turn some other people off. Um, you know, can you talk about like progressions in other sports and and the importance of being able to to build people and the capacity for people to adapt. Right. If if you if you cycle training properly. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. So there is kind of an argument that one should be able to move one's body through space first. So basic gymnastics and calisthenics Mm, stuff. And mm -hmm. in that, I would personally include, you know, all the classic things, squatting, lunging, pressing, you know, pull-ups, body rows, but break falls too. Like knowing how to do a front shoulder roll and a back back shoulder roll and, and, uh, you know, back extension rolls and stuff like that. If there's, you know... People talk about Brazilian jiu-jitsu and some of these other things for self-defense, which there's definitely laudable elements to that. But the likelihood of you falling while skiing or snowboarding or crashing a bicycle and having some inkling of awareness about landing in a better versus a worse position mm-hmm. is probably more likely to save your life or prevent serious injury than like self-defense skills. I could not you know? agree more, man. And, and uh, when we were running our, our strength and conditioning program, we taught people front shoulder roll, back shoulder roll. It was great mobility and people really enjoyed it, but it was also one of those things that they they came back to us and were like, man, I was skiing and I crashed and I just, you know, I tucked my chin and I, I rolled over and everything was okay. And so, you know, there's a little bit, there's an argument for some kind of body mastery around just your own body weight mm-hmm. and your ability to move yourself through space. 
And then when you get that fairly wired up and we're dealing with any potential orthopedic issues or movement impediments, you know, Mm -hmm. just dealing with your own loading, then we start externally loading you, squatting, deadlifting, maybe Mm -hmm. some power cleans and stuff like that. And there's just an infinite progression with that stuff, club bells, kettlebells, you know. But Mm -hmm. I think that that's a pretty nice progression is to kind of figure out your own body, how to move your own body and have some thought towards the strength, the the stamina, but also that um, injury proofing via kind of funky break falls. And like Capoeira has some cool stuff. Clearly, judo and mm-hmm. jujitsu has some cool stuff. Like the ability to go from standing and then have your feet swept out from under you and transition into a cartwheel is pretty cool. Oh my and, gosh! And you yeah. know, I mean, and uh, uh, even in jujitsu, I find that a, 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 a lot of my sweep prevention or sweep retention type stuff is i'm able to affect some things that are pretty cool because i'm comfortable popping up on my hands and kind of walking around on my Mm. hands briefly and stuff like that and uh and i've definitely noticed you know some times where i've taken a fall slid down a hill or something like that awareness has been really helpful for me Mm. awesome thank you for that um so you also were involved in crossfit from the early days um our mutual friend Brad Hirokawa met you originally at the first uh, CrossFit cert. Yeah, yeah. And what was it like in those days? Let's reminisce. Oh man, it, you know it was honestly like the best thing in the world because uh-huh. it was this super cool community. You had this sense that it was really unique, really special. Um, all the women in it were super hot, and uh, uh, so you can't can't really be, beat that. At Tell all. me more. Yeah. Tell me more. And uh, you know, but it was. Um, you know, I think both for good and ill, people tend towards tribalism. You know, there's good mm-hmm. elements and bad elements to it. But there was this tribalistic piece to it that, you, you know, we're kind of the in crowd and we're doing something different and we're yeah. changing the world. And so there was something really powerful about that. And the way that I look at health is sleep, food, exercise, community. Those are Mm. non-negotiable characteristics of human health. Like if you are missing some element of that, and it's different for everybody, but you need some element of that stuff. Um, unbeknownst to the uh, the Glassmans, the CrossFit founders, or maybe it, it was somewhat engineered, but if you go into a well-run CrossFit gym, the coach is going to ideally talk to you about sleep and food because it's a critical part mm-hmm. of your your performance and body composition goals and everything. The exercise is kind of baked in the cake because it's a gym. For sure. You go there to get your ass kicked doing CrossFit. And then on the backside of this is this profound community. And mm. it's really the thing that, it, you know, even when people get tired of going to the CrossFit class and they have butterflies in their stomach because they're like, oh, my God, what type of bloodletting is it going to be today? The reason why they keep going is there's that community of people that they're, that they're sharing this, this experience with. And so a really well-run CrossFit gym really can address all of the, like, physical, psychological, spiritual needs of an, an individual. And that, that's part of the reason why I think it's been so sticky. Um, martial arts classes have a similar opportunity, but it's interesting. I've seen fewer people interested in taking on the health elements that would be, you, you know, if you go to a strength and conditioning or a personal trainer type coach – it's kind of expected that they're going to talk about food and sleep and all, all this mm-hmm. other stuff. Whereas the the martial arts scene, even though health and performance is an element of it, I haven't seen as many people 
really take a leadership role with that and say, hey, if you want to perform better, if you're mm-hmm. part of your goal is body composition change, let's talk about some nutritional strategies. What time are you going to bed? Are you, you know yeah. what is horse meat involved in that? It could be. It could be. <laughs> Particularly, you like Italy a lot, and uh, Italy is flush with horse meat. So yeah, yeah. Uh, th- that is that is an excellent point. Um, it seems like in a lot more traditional martial arts, uh, they might bring in. I definitely notice. For example, I was at a Hapkido um, retreat last weekend, and a lot more about physiology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, a lot more about the nervous system, right. about you know pressure points, and uh, not that pressure points. Uh, it's it's helpful. It's useful whether you're doing shiatsu or you're trying to enhance the effectiveness of a technique. You know, right. that kind of precise placement and understanding about the body. Um, and it seems like Chinese martial arts might, uh, in my experience, I've. It seems like they would bring that up a right. little bit more, like journaling food. But like in a modern jujitsu class, it seems like overreach. Right. Right. You know, like don't get into my food. Right. You know, I can, I can have my ding dongs and right. or whatever, whatever kind of, you know, guilty dietary pleasure that that you like. It, it definitely seems invasive when it really shouldn't be right well in in my take on that is is just kind of and again like it's a we've talked about this a bunch uh, since we've been hanging out it's a lot to run a service-based business like it is oftentimes everything wait a minute you're telling a whole lot more (laughs) and uh and so there is a, a case to be made for stay in your lane do what you do well, you know, all that mm-hmm. type of stuff. But it, at the same time, um, part of the goal, if somebody has come into your business and they've spent any amount of time with you, you did all the hard work, like getting the person in the door and just getting a sign up is, mm-hmm. is a big deal. And then it's all about retention, like particularly as the person progresses, they become less and less of a liability and less and less potentially of a pain in the ass, right, you know, right. and, and this is true, whether it's strength and conditioning or, or potentially martial arts. And clearly there's exceptions to this. Like mm-hmm. we've had clients that become more and more of a pain in the ass as time goes on. But, you know, in general, that that's kind of the, the case. And so what are the, the additional things that one could offer to help them stay in? And mm-hmm. so like doing a, a, you know, a quarterly survey, like what else do you want to do that enhances your experience in the gym? Like, do you want to lose more weight? Do you have body composition goals and, and, uh, addressing some basic nutrition and, um, you know, the sleep and circadian rhythm, like just getting people to sleep better. Selling sleep should be as easy as selling sex and, and, you know, not that you're being sold into sex, but that mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's good sex with someone you want to have. Like <laughs> sleep should be that easy to sell. And, um, this kind of Puritan work ethic that is endemic in the U.S. And there's many laudable elements to it, but there's this sense of, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Sleep is for the weak. and no uh, But then people will look to pills and potions and really extreme dietary interventions to try to lose weight or Monster do different things. Monster energy drinks. Monster energy drinks. Whereas if you just went to bed earlier, like yes. you will lean out. Your recovery will be better. There's nothing more... There's not a performance-enhancing drug that works better than sleep. And, oh. and any other performance-enhancing stuff you want to throw on top of it doesn't really work that well unless you're sleeping well. You know, mm-hmm. like you've, It's a non-negotiable feature, and I do think that that's an opportunity for folks, whether it's yoga or Pilates or whatever. I think that it probably behooves them to, 
to nose around that a little bit and to be reasonably agnostic as to like nutritional protocols like mm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. paleo, vegan, macrobiotic. Cool. Let's just try something. Let's, you know, five days out of seven, let's try not to eat anything out of a box or, you know, that has mm-hmm. a laundry list of ingredients that is more like home cooked or, or fresh prepared. The weekends, kick your heels up, have some fun, do something else. But we could be agnostic as to nutritional intervention and help a ton of people. And right. then there's one thing that we really don't have to be agnostic about, which is better sleep and better circadian rhythm. Like first thing in the morning, get outside, get some sun on your mm. your skin, get some sun in your eyes, you know, like uh, to whatever degree possible, do that. And even if you live in the Pacific Northwest, it's brighter outside than it is inside. So get outside as much as you can and set yes. up that good circadian rhythm. And those things sound crazy, but it's it's kind of the basic biophysics that governs biology and and a little effort in that direction just has huge dividends, but it, it, it's so it seems so airy fairy that it's hard to get people to buy in on it. And it's free. Like if there was mm-hmm. some way that I could charge people twenty nine ninety five six easy installments, and it's like okay, you go outside and sit in the sun, then people would do it more. But the fact that it's free, they're kind of like I don't know if that's that important. So oh yeah, those are um, sleep is important. I remember one time when I was running the academy. Uh, I reached out to you because I felt I felt overtrained. I wasn't recovering right, and it it went back to sleep. Right. It went right. back to you know too dry. I need a humidifier in my room. I end up having surgery on my nose because I had a blocked airway. It it and you know once you start dialing in on that and have a little, you gotta have discipline mm-hmm. when it comes to like you have to turn off Netflix. Right. Right. You know, you have to maybe get electronic devices out of the room. Um, and you're obviously, you're a fan of blackout sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Light, yeah, lights out. Yeah, we, um, we've we spent a decent amount of money making our, our bedroom like a tomb. And mm-hmm. it, it just, uh, the dividends it pays. And again, if people don't really believe this, then clean out your closet, make a, a nice, you know, get a couple of sleeping bags, make it reasonably comfortable. And sleep in that closet for a night mm-hmm. in pitch black mm-hmm. and just tell me and make it cold and, and so that you, you know, snuggle under the blankets yes. and everything and get all comfortable. Like you will sleep better. You will. It, oftentimes what happens is I'll get a phone call from, from someone that I suggest this to and they're like, dude, I slept through my alarm like the thing was going off for an hour because they've got years of sleep debt. And then the oh. first time that they really put themselves in a really good position to sleep well, mm-hmm. like they, they sleep a lot. So you do need to be aware of that. But that should also be kind of a wake-up call. You know, if, yes. if you set up the sleep environment well, then it, it's going to kind of go well. And I, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. But, you know, if you want to go ice skating, you need ice and you need skates. If you want to sleep well, you need a nice environment. And it needs to be dark. Like we're not right. wired to sleep in the light, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Cue my recent visit to Alaska, and and oh, yeah. it's a little bit. It's a, I don't feel like sleeping. It's you're, you're triggered. It's eleven o'clock at night, and you get a little crazy. Like you, you get a yeah. little crazy during that time. You know, I mean, your circadian rhythm adjusts to it, but you're mm-hmm. sleeping way less, and you're just kind of like edgy and yeah, and on. amped without yeah. the caffeine. Yeah, somehow. Yeah, somehow. But I still get the caffeine too. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, you ran NorCal strength and conditioning mm-hmm. for many years, and you know I ran an, a BJJ academy for many years as well, and I loved it. 
And, you know, there are ups and downs with running any kind of service-based business like that. Uh, what kind of just general guidelines uh, can you give people that might want to get into that space, whether it's a box, whether it's a yoga shala, whether it's a jiu-jitsu academy? Um, can you give any general principles? Oh, of- man. We, we, Roy and I talked about this last night while we were having a, a few cocktails, and we should have recorded that because <laughs> no. it's probably, probably more honest than what I'm going to do now. But um, And we, we talked about this. Like someone contemplating opening a service-based business, I would almost – try to talk them out of it first. Mm. Like mm-hmm. I, I would make them run the gauntlet before putting money and time and effort into all of that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of considerations. It, oftentimes people open a business like that or it could be baking or whatever. They have a passion for something, yeah. which is great. But then all too often when you take that passion and turn it into your, your paycheck, you can grow to hate it. And so that's mm-hmm. something to just keep in mind that that's a potentiality. It's not a yeah. guarantee, but it's a potentiality. And, you know, if if you're coaching people, whether it's yoga or, or, or CrossFit or, or jiu-jitsu or whatever, you're going to have people in your face all the time. And are you – people get kind of weirded out about the Myers-Briggs deal. Like, is it astrology? Is it not? Right. The most powerful element of that that I've seen is this kind of idea of introvert versus extrovert. And, and introvert isn't that you don't like people. It's that you need some quiet time. If, if you're around a lot of people, it may be a little draining. You may enjoy it a lot, but you're kind of like, okay, I've, I've had enough. Whereas mm-hmm. there are people who are legit extroverts, and if you give them a book and a quiet room – they go nuts. Like they need an entourage. They need a group of people. They need to be on stage. And usually people are kind of somewhere in the middle. They need a little right. bit of a, a give and take with that. But we've seen a ton of people that were really passionate about movement or martial arts, but they were an introvert. And then they opened the facility and they were smoked like a year and a half, two years in. They were just crushed because they didn't understand how much people time and exposure that they have because it's all the stuff before class, all the stuff after class. You have an interview with uh, Mr. Harris, and he says, you know, <laughs> identical stuff, which was was super validating for me. But it's just people all the time, social media and phone calls and emails. And it can be awesome, but it can also be exhausting. So, like, mm-hmm. really having a good sense of where you are on that introvert, extrovert spectrum. And if you are a bit more introverted, but you still want to do this, it's not to say you shouldn't do it, but you should probably have some assistant coaches on day one and, and that, you, you know, or some way to unload that whole thing. And then uh, something that I, we had talked a little bit about last night, there's going into this stuff as a, this is going to be a business and pay my bills. And then there's also the opportunity to open up a club type scenario mm-hmm where you can do the coaching and you charge enough to keep the lights on and the bills paid and kind of provide for some infrastructure, maybe provide some scholarships for people that can't afford a regular class, but it's a much more modest schedule. Your obligations are less, the expectations are less, and you rent some off hour space from someone else. There's no shame in doing that. Like Mm -hmm. if, if that's where you are, and there are a lot of people that are running businesses today that they would be happier if they they ran a a club scenario, you know, and no kidding. And then they're a a pharmacy tech or something for their nine to five. And then they do this other thing a couple of days a week and they, uh, they motor along with that. And then there was, there was one other, Oh, your risk tolerance. So are you okay with really, so when I opened up our gym, I took all of my 
stock options in the biotech I worked for mm -hmm. and every nickel, dime, and penny. And I took some student loans because I was enrolled in school and rolled it all into starting the gym. Which looking back now and understanding real risk and how dodgy that was, yeah. the fact that five years in, like 90 or 95% of businesses fail, I would never do that now. And so the, the ignorance is bliss to some degree, but I was lucky in that I was at a point in my life where some risk was okay. The woman that I had in my life, Nikki, and who, who I've subsequently married, is also pretty risk tolerant, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so we were both on the same page, and we also had very similar financial goals. Like, I drive a 10-year-old car. I could buy a lot more car, but I don't want a lot more mm -hmm. car. I like freedom a lot more than my car. So if you have one person that is risk tolerant and willing to live kind of a modest lifestyle because they've got a longer-term goal, but then the spouse likes the nice car and they want the guaranteed paycheck yeah. and all that stuff. You have a divorce brewing, like unless you make this thing kick over immediately and, and it, everything goes great and it's almost guaranteed not to do that, then you've got a divorce brewing and a, a, the, the divorce rates among these CrossFit gym owners is just shocking. You know, I, I don't know what no, it is within martial arts that. schools, but it, it's, um, it's huge. You usually have lots of dating options, but you know, then you're, 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 uh, you're cannibalizing your own pool of people. So that's a whole other dodgy deal. But, you know, but that's a, that risk tolerance piece, not just for you, but the significant others in your mm -hmm. life. And it could even be family. Like you have some really traditional parents that, that they're like, well, what are you doing for your retirement and all this stuff? And right. that can just weigh on you. You know, you, you start questioning yourself when it, it, so if you, if you meet all this criteria and you go through all this stuff, then then what I recommend beyond that is you figure out a way to get the thing going in an incremental fashion. You set goals and you have deadlines for these goals as far as um, revenue and, and number of bodies that represent that revenue. And if you don't meet it, you're going to close down shop. Like you mm -hmm. need to set these things and you work your ass off to reach them. But you have some really hard hard lines in the sand that you work towards. And then in addition to doing that, you burn the boats. Like you fully commit, like not meeting that goal may mean that you're living under a bridge for a while, right? but you didn't leave an out until the out is legit. And, and so it, it's kind of like, you don't commit, you don't commit, you vet, you, you plan. And then when you, when you do it, you do it for real and it, and it's all in. I, oh my God, that I definitely, um, echo a lot of those sentiments and you know and I did a similar thing with with the academy I cashed things in I gambled it was it was a big risk a, a risk that I'm, I'm really glad that I took now in retrospect but it was it was definitely going for it to leave right. the security of a job as an audio engineer right and to be able to I mean really roll the dice right and, and you know not it, it, some people may be off put by this but uh, there is a, a financial return thing mm. that I think is worth talking about. So we put a massive amount of like eight years of effort in before we sold our, our business. But mm -hmm. if you look at things like Facebook and Twitter and, and tech startups and all that sort of stuff, there's a lot of risk, but there's also a potential of a really big payday for some of these things. Right. If you start a service-based business, you will put as much effort into that as any technology startup. Mm -hmm. But there is not, with rare exceptions, is there the potential for the exit or the upside that you're going to see 
with something like a technology startup and and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And again, like I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now had I not done the gym, but I burned my vital essence of, you you know, so like you've got that one or two tech startups in you. Yeah, right. I did that on something that basically had a very capped income potential and, and had limited scale. And then I was kind of a knucklehead. So we called it NorCal strength and conditioning. And so it was region, like lots of people pinged us about like, Hey, we want to be an affiliate, but they were in Minnesota. And it's like NorCal strength. You know, it's like yeah, yeah. LA mm-hmm. fitness is one thing, but right. NorCal strength and conditioning, like Minnesota is kind of like, touch too niche. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of considerations with that, you know, and again, people may feel like that's overly money oriented, but you've got to keep the lights on and the bills paid and deal with your, you know, what you want to do. We have kids. We have to, you know, think about yeah. sending them to school and legacy mm-hmm. for them and everything. And so it's, no joke considerations, you know, and, and, uh, stuff that when you, you just hunker in and start working, you sometimes don't give it enough airplay before jumping in. But, you know, being an entrepreneur is not for everybody. Um, and sometimes I find, and we, I mentioned this with you and Nikki, um, you guys are, are friends and, and it's also inspiring to talk to other entrepreneurs. And I have kind of a circle of mind, I, um, that I reach out to, to kind of, bounce ideas off of what do you think of this you know they turn you on to other people uh, fantastic recommendations i th- i think that um that's really important um and you've been able to shift as an entrepreneur several times you know whether it's a, a brick and mortar then becoming a best-selling author and now you're really interested in like permaculture and farming and sustainability um, talk about like your new vision and, and what you're, where you're shifting into. Oh man. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, so a long time ago I was in a, a creative writing class and the, the, one of my best friends was in the class with me and we were just absolute shit stains, just, you know, 19 year old. Yeah. F- fresh out of high school, just know everything. And she threw out this assignment which was um, write about and then also do some kind of art-related stuff. Envision something in your head, describe it, and then do your best job to create it. And so we set in on this, and we were kind of poo-pooing this whole thing. And and uh, uh, she came over and was checking on me, and she's like, "This is interesting stuff, but what are you envisioning?" And I'm like, "Well, I, I don't. I'm not really envisioning anything. I, I'm just, you know, this looks cool and that looks cool." She's like, "But the exercise is to envision something and then create it." And I got super angry, like hmm. I, I did super agitated, and like this was years later, but. I grew up in a fairly dysfunctional, poor family. Like they, it, we lived on the margins. And what I've kind of figured out in doing some reading and even looking back at that environment, I became very, very good at responding to stimulus that came in mm-hmm. and opportunities. And sometimes I, you know, I would uh, beneficially capitalize on opportunities. But I've been pissed poor at imagining what I wanted. Mm. And it's only been lately, maybe the last five years, and I, I've got to credit my uh, my wife hugely on this because she's very good at like delineating what she wants to do and having kind of a vision. That I, I got to tell you, like thinking about doing that would make me super uncomfortable. And the reason why was – you know, if I could just make something cool out of a complete shit show, then it's like, oh, I didn't have much, you know, to work with and look at how great I did. With right. It. 
And whereas if I decide what I want to do, lay that out there, and then I fail, then it implies that I'm a failure. So it was this whole like weird internal dialogue, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like shit that I was not really particularly aware of. You know, I had right. developed coping mechanisms that were great for allowing me to succeed at one level of kind of operation and were completely hamstringing anything further that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So that's a big preamble to this whole thing of, you know, like where I'm trying to go. But I really am trying, you know, my vision is trying to dovetail together this physical culture of martial arts and physical training, food, food production, and medicine. So I sit on the board of directors of a a medical clinic here in Reno, and we did a pilot study with the Reno Police, Reno Fire Department a number of years ago where we found people at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, put them on a paleo diet, modified their sleep and exercise, and based off the changes in their blood work, it's estimated that we saved the city of Reno $22 million with a 33 to 1 return on investment. Mm. So super cool stuff. And in the background of what people need to affect that, they need a community and they need a physical culture community to plug into. And that could be yoga or CrossFit or martial arts. And then in the background of that, they need a stable, clean food system mm. to feed them the way that their body needs to be fed. And so that, you know, we don't live in, in just, you know, an ecological collapse. And so this is kind of my my vision at this point. And it's, it's funny. I had some 23andMe genetic testing done. And theoretically, like, I'm, like, six standard deviations below the norm in empathy. Like, I, I did theoretically the genotype that I am. Like, I just don't feel <laughs> stuff. I'm writing that down. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and it, which kind of makes some sense. Like, oftentimes, my response to people having emotional situations, I'm kind of like, okay, they're sad, and so I should do <laughs> this in response. But I think there's a little bit of, um, like, I'm so apathetic on so many things that I need to like save the world to have Mm. a sense of purpose. Like it needs to be pretty big or I'm just like, ah, it's not worth doing Mm -hmm, it. And mm -hmm. so it's some pretty big stuff that, that I'm gunning for, but you know, it is interesting. Like I, I maybe have a little cocksureness now because we, we co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. Yes. CrossFit wasn't a thing at all when, we first got into it. This paleo diet concept was not a thing when we got into it. Uh, in 1998, I can I can still find where I was talking about ketogenic diets for brain tumors in 1998. And only now are there human trials that are really coming on and, and vetting this stuff mm-hmm. out. So we've been pretty early in a lot of stuff. And I feel like I've been in a, a position where I've been able to goose some things in what I feel are favorable directions And so I'm kind of like, oh, okay, I could do this. Like I can integrate medicine and food production and all that stuff. And so that's kind of what I'm, I'm working towards and trying to make my own life both an example, but also just a, a, it should immediately improve my quality of life doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. And you have, you're a biochemist. So you take that scientific approach Mm -hmm. to a lot of things in your life. And your last book, you did a lot of experiments with, uh, blood blood uh, sugar regulation yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and 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 you did some things with your wife and 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 experiment on yourself and um what did you learn in that oh man it, you know i learned that it, it's so funny because if someone had asked me a nutrition question 10 years ago the dunning kruger effect yeah. was fully rolling like <laughs> i was confident uh, you know to the uh, confident oh, yeah. interval of point p value 0.95 you know like 
Uh, and as time has gone on just so much, I find that the answer, it depends. It depends, it depends, it depends. And there's so much individuality. You know, if the thing that we discovered with that was, uh, it, it was confirmational in a way. Like I've always known I don't do great with lots of carbs. Like I just get blood sugar swings. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that good. I get kind of doughy through the midsection. Mm-hmm. And although I do the bulk of the cooking in the house, my wife eats effectively what I eat, so she tends to eat a little bit on the lower-carb side of things. When she'll kick her heels up and have some rice or some lentils or whatever, it doesn't affect her at all. Whereas, like, Mm. if we're both out at Mexican food and we eat the same meal, I would ask her, I'm like, how do you feel? And she's like, I'm a little rough, but I'm okay. And, like, I'm literally, like, ready to pass out at the table. And I feel bad for a couple of days afterwards. And so we started doing this blood sugar testing where we ate the same amount of carbs, like 50 grams of carbohydrate from from applesauce or white rice or lentils or what have you. And like the white rice was really interesting. My my wife, who is 35, 40 pounds lighter than I am. So mm-hmm. just the fact that she's smaller, she should have a higher blood sugar response relative to me just because there's less of her to sure. dilute, dilute the, the blood sugar. But her high uh, eating the 50 grams of rice, which is a very modest portion, you know, like if you go out to sushi, you're probably eating like 100, 150 Mm -hmm. grams of rice. But her top end blood sugar was like 121, 122. Mine was in the 190s, which Mm. is basically diabetic. Mm -hmm. And, um, And we just saw that again and again and again. And so it was one of those. And then interestingly, we shifted her from that experiment and we had her fast for 18 hours check her blood for ketones, and she was already in ketosis, which usually it takes people about three days Mm. to transition into ketosis where you're Mm. using fat as kind of your primary fuel source. And I I have this sneaky suspicion that really healthy humans that haven't had lots of antibiotics and gut problems and sleep dysregulation and everything, we should all be pretty flexible eating carbs or not eating carbs. Like we transit, Mm -hmm. eat a bunch of carbs, shouldn't be a big deal. You don't eat any carbs. It doesn't lay you up for a couple of days as you transition into ketosis. And my wife was raised on a farm, had a lot fewer antibiotics than I did. Her mm. whole family is generally healthier than I. Mm. My hip family was, so you've got that like grandparent and parent kind of epigenetic inputs mm-hmm. that that could be beneficial or not. But we, you know, observationally, we've always known that Nikki was probably more carb tolerant and insulin sensitive than I am. We did some self-experimentation that really made that pretty clear. And it's been very helpful for a lot of people because, you know, you've got these warring factions. It's like high carb, low fat is the only way to go. And you see great examples of people thriving on that. And then you see people thriving on the other spectrum. And then you see some people in the middle ground eating zone type ratios and they're doing well. Mm -hmm. And then people like me don't do well with wheat, but other people do. And, Mm. and so it, it, uh, in the second book, Wired to Eat, I talked a lot about you know, let's set up a baseline where we're starting with largely whole unprocessed foods and it'll be kind of paleo leaning because those foods tend to not, not be in that kind of allergenic, immunogenic deal so they don't make people inflamed. And let's test. Let's introduce new things and see how your blood sugar is. Let's check um, subjective elements like how do you feel after the meal? How do you feel six hours after the meal? Could you go eight or ten hours without eating and be okay, be hungry, but be functional or do you auger into a mountainside and you are non-functional now mm-hmm. at this point? And it, it, the feedback we've had has been really, really valuable for people. But, you know, it's interesting. The, the second book is doing very, very well. But I don't know if it will do as well as the first book because the first book was kind of a black and white. It's, totally. it's low carb. It's paleo. 
here is a path, follow the path, don't deviate off the path. Whereas this other one starts you off with that path, but then it's got a lot of nuance and detail. And the feedback we've had is that the people who follow that have really, really amazing results, but it doesn't lend itself quite as well to that, like, you know, tribalistic kind of thing. It really depends. You don't have, you don't have that, that maybe you identify with a little bit of a group. It's like, okay, I eat a little lower carb, but I can actually eat some wheat and it doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm. And so you're no longer in the paleo crowd. So who do you identify with, you know? And yeah, I wouldn't leave the house after that. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, you know, it, that it's, we love certainty as humans. We love certainty, whether we find it through. And it's all a a lie. It's all a lie. Well, it's definitely (laughs) an amazing, a sign of strength and intellectual strength that you're able to kind of re-examine your own positions. And, you know, Richard Dawkins has a story of, of a professor who um, his entire life was devoted toward basically taking this one position, oh, yeah. this one biological yeah. position. Yeah. And then, you know, 30 years in, he has a presenter which disproves his position and he says he catches he has a catch in his throat every time he recalls a story of of how he said well i i guess i've been wrong this whole time and and he appreciated the opportunity to learn something new even if it was at the expense of his own work and that kind of courage is uh, what we need it's what we need everywhere and you know whether it's cross training in another martial art, and I, I did some hapkido classes mm-hmm. last weekend, and it made me appreciate um, and respect another martial path. And you know, jujitsu doesn't have all the answers. CrossFit doesn't have all the answers. Um, paleo may not be for everyone, but you know, to be able to become an expert and then introduce nuance and that's when you can i think that's when you're really starting to help people when you when you can give them a prescription for diet exercise and and really tailor it to them as opposed to it's less about category and more about individuality right right you know and that's a very evolved place to be oh thank you thanks it's uh 10 20 years of fiddling <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but thank you. Thank you. You know, but it, it, it is uh, it is interesting because people want that certitude and, it, and you can kind of understand it in a way like uh, on the one hand, I want to provide people nuance. But if you have somebody that's just living their life and they just want to look and feel better, I can't blow them out of the water with a zillion details. So I need to start with some template of some sort. And right. that, that's the thing also that I think we need to be flexible with when you're starting someone down a, a path whether it's jujitsu or whatever, you kind of need a path through the forest. Certainly. It's not the path, but it's a path. Mm -hmm. And then when you get that one mapped out a little bit, then you can start doing some offshoots and do some different things. And it's like, and you may decide, man, that thing I was doing, it isn't working at all. And you, you jettison that you may feel like it was wasted time, but you just, you can't do everything all at once, you know? Mm -hmm. So you've got to pick something and kind of tinker and iterate. And, but definitely the challenge is to be open to the notion that, uh, uh, you know, like your own confirmation bias may be really problematic. Like I had huge success with weight loss and autoimmune conditions. Mm-hmm. Like our, our, we were open as a gym for two years and then we were picked as one of men's health top 30 gyms in America, mm-hmm. 400 or 4,000 square foot little, little gym out in Chico, California, but we had huge success, but I, it was a uh, selection bias. 
word got out that I was good with this stuff. And so people literally came from around the world to work with us Mm -hmm. who had these specific things. And then I assumed that that specific tool of kind of ketogenic diet, low carb, autoimmune paleo was a solution for everybody. And then I started working with some MMA athletes, and I was like, man, these guys don't seem to function very well on a ketogenic diet. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're performance tanks, and, you know, I just can't seem to make it work. And and it, it took some fiddling where I'm like, okay, so insulin isn't the worst thing in the world if you aren't diabetic or peridiabetic and overeating. Like mm-hmm. if you're a hard-charging athlete, you, we may be able to uh, fat adapt you a little bit more, but there's kind of a reality. If you do a glycolytic-based sport, right. you need some glucose like yeah. that, 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 there's just no way around it you know and that was a hard lesson for me i broke a lot of people i broke myself trying to like square peg round round right. hole that thing yeah so but, some of that learning I, I appreciate you giving me some props on that but um i didn't arrive at it in a graceful fashion like it was more like tripping and falling in a giant vat of, of shit than it was like a, an insightful kind of process you know yeah well you're better looking on this end of it. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. And um, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great position, and I think um, that inspires. But when people in the public eye are willing to adjust or admit that they're wrong, uh, I think it it sends a strong signal. And you know, you're a leader and uh, definitely a thought leader. So to be able to to do that, I think um, in this age of uh, echo chambers and increased polarization and and people gravitate toward those that are certain. Right. You know, because, you know, daddy may be wrong, but he's strong. Right. And there's, there's you know, and, and we're seeing that in this new era of YouTube stars and personalities and political pundits and talking heads. I mean, I think we need more understanding, a little less certainty. And uh, I, th- I think I think that's, um, whether it's martial arts or religion or even science versus anti-science, I, I think there's there's definitely room for understanding where the other person's coming from and having a little bit more gray. Right. I mean, it's not just in my hair, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> it yeah. should, it should, we should reserve a little for our thoughts, too. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. It, it, Roy, thank you. It's a huge honor. You're, you've been a, a wonderful friend for a long time. And, uh, uh, you know, it is interesting that um, the the entrepreneur track you know we were talking mm-hmm. about this a little bit like uh it's a lonely place like it, it, it can you be. usually you know you end up kind of hanging out with other entrepreneurs and and it's you know to uh, to sing your praises you too have pivoted multiple times and and reinvented and reinvigorated what you're up to and i, I just love knowing you and honored to have you as my friend i appreciate that very nice thank you rob and um we'll talk to you soon awesome Finally, if you don't already own the collection, then you should. In a world where education is essential, the collection teaches literacy. It's a comprehensive library and a must-have guide for men and women looking to discover who they are, understand the art, and come out on top in the physical debate. Don't miss out on a chance for real understanding collection is now available and you can get 10% off with the code podcast till next time my friends 
gratitude, and grace. <laughs>